Hi, and welcome to the Dream Permit Podcast, a podcast dedicated to inspiring moms and empowering moms to live up to their full potential without viewing motherhood as a hindrance. And I'm your host, Emma. I'm so glad you're here. This episode is sponsored by my signature coaching program, You Unveiled. Do you feel like you've lost your identity to motherhood? Do you have dreams you would like to achieve but you feel you can't simply because you're now a mom? Would you like to make extra income utilizing skills and gifts you already possess? If you answered yes to any of the questions, I'd love to chat with you. Let's see if you're a good fit for the program. Book a free call at dreampermit.com slash chat. That is dreampermit.com forward slash chat. Let's get your identity back and make you some money. Welcome back to another episode of your Dream Permit Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing marriage and sex. So to tackle this topic, I have Jessa Zimmerman on the guest chair. A little more about Jessa. Jessa is a certified sex therapist and couples counselor. She specializes in helping couples who have a good relationship, but who are avoiding sex because it's become stressful, negative, disappointing, or just pressured. She educates coaches and supports people as they go through her nine-phase experiential process that allows them real-world practice in changing their relationship and their sex life. She is the author of Sex Without Stress, the host of the Better Sex podcast, and is a regularly featured expert in the media, including Refinery29, Business Insider, Mind Body Green, and Marriage.com. Welcome, Jessa. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you here today. So we'll be addressing the hot topic sex, the <laughs> the taboo topic, don't touch sex, like right. secret, secret topic. So the question I have for you is, the first question is, what does a healthy sex life look like? And how often should sex be happening in a marriage? Uh, well, let's see. To me, those are very different questions. Oh, okay. So let's tackle it one one after the other. Yeah, then. One, at, one at a time. So a healthy sex life, boy, where do I even start? It's um, it's one that is really working for both people in a relationship that they both mm-hmm. feel good about and engaged in. It's one where they're putting some attention into their intimate life together to whatever degree they want that, where they can be respectful and kind, um, honest and direct. <laughs> And, hmm. you know, and that they're, the sex that they're having is, is pleasurable for both people. In terms, of, okay. in terms of frequency, it's interesting. So many people come in talking about how often they have sex. How often should we have sex? How many times <laughs> or whatever? And I always think that's the wrong conversation. You know, when, when people are starting to count <laughs> sexual encounters, I think we're talking about the wrong thing. There's there's okay. no there's no amount of sex that's the right amount. So you could have a couple very happily married, neither one of which wants to have sex at all, and that would be fine. Right? You can have another couple that uh, are enjoying sex five times a day, and that's fine. And anywhere in between. It's really about finding a balance um in a way that both people feel you know happy and satisfied and engaged and Two, two people that are together are always going to want a different amount of sex. It's not like uh, they're going to be perfectly matched. So it's about collaborating with your partner and finding something you both can enjoy. Hmm. So where does sexual compatibility fit into this? Because you're saying like two different couples can actually say they don't want to have sex and they are fine. And the other, the other couple wants to have sex like five times a week and they're also fine. But what if one party, one partner is like, I want it five times and the other, other partner is like, 
I would rather just have it once a week. So how 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 do they manage this? Well, okay, so that's what we call a sexual desire discrepancy, right? One person wants more sex than the other. Very common. In fact, almost universally true. You know, basically, there's always one person that wants sex more than the other. And sometimes that changes over time. And sometimes that difference is bigger than other times. So that's not a problem by itself. But it becomes a problem for a lot of people. I mean, in my therapy practice, it's probably the most common issue that comes up. So people struggle with that discrepancy. And what you... I'm trying to think how to how to talk about this. It's sort of a complicated topic. The person that wants more sex, mm-hmm. when it's a problem, usually they're taking this personally. They feel rejected. They feel like they're not important. You know, they start getting, you know, upset and they start to put a lot of pressure on their sex life to make themselves feel better. And the person that wants less sex often feels broken. Like, what's wrong with me that I don't have sexual desire or it's, or it's my fault or they feel all this pressure because the other person wants sex, right? So when they start to, to fall into these traps, they start to struggle around sex. They start to maybe fight about how often they're having it. It's, it they stop really working together to make sure that this is really engaging for both people. Does that make sense? Yeah. So at the end of the so day, what pro- you're saying is both of them are actually in a way, broken. Well, I mean, at least I think they're broken. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody actually is broken. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think think the key to this though, is realizing that the person that wants less sex um, probably has some good reasons for that besides just the, the level of their innate libido. So it's important to start to listen to the person that wants less sex and figure out what might be in their way. What's going on that's making them want it less than they might? How, what did they know about what works for them and what doesn't? How does what they want start to be incorporated in the sex they're having? You know, so that sex can be as engaging for that person as possible. And hmm. then for the person that wants more sex, they have to realize that it's never going to meet, um, it's never going to be at their level. They may not get as much as they would want as if, you know, if they were in charge. Right. So they've got to they've got to start to um, not take it personally and, you know, maybe figure out, you know, masturbate or something, do something with that extra sexual energy and to to start to participate with their partner in a way that really honors what the other person wants, too. Mm-hmm. OK, that's interesting. So how about sexual like activity avoidance? So for instance, we're talking about uh, sexual compatibility here, like different people want different things. But what about particular activities? Like this co- this uh, partner wants oral sex and the other partner is against that or against this style, this position. How, how can one handle that? Yeah, I mean, that gets a little tricky. We all have the things that really turn us on and that we want. And all of that, I think, is valid. Um, I I guess what I I encourage people to be willing to get out of their comfort zone. There's sort of a difference between when we need to say no, you know, something hurts us in a way we don't like, or it's really going to be negative. And when we just want to say no, because maybe we're not totally comfortable you know, and and stepping out of our comfort zone like that and trying some things that we think we don't like or, you know, developing more comf- comfort with other sexual acts, you know, there's there's a use for that. But there's also a limit. Like, we, we shouldn't be doing things that we hate. Yeah. <laughs> or that, or, you know, that we just feel awful about. So it's sort of this balancing act of where do you need a firm boundary? Like, I'm just not I just don't like this. I've tried it or I've thought about it. I, you know, I just can't do this and feel good about myself <laughs> versus wait, I'm uncomfortable or it makes me anxious. But if I practice, if I go slowly, I can gain more comfort. And then that maybe this could be part of our sexual repertoire. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's this balancing act between challenging yourself and not just staying with what you're comfortable with and knowing, wait, when do I have to have a firm line? Because if you think about it, you know, even things like, you know, French kissing, what we what we call it, right? Yeah. Uh, tongue kissing or, you know, whatever it is, whatever we do for the first time, we're not comfortable with it. <laughs> That's true. Off, yeah. Right? We start it's off weird. Yeah. 
Yeah. And with practice and with relaxation and with partners we trust and things like that, we develop comfort. So it's the same thing with something like oral sex, for instance, where somebody thinks they're totally against it. Well, maybe they just haven't developed the comfort yet. You know, maybe not. not. Maybe this is something they just can never uh, embrace. Right. But maybe they can. Yeah. But they first have to try. Well, or they have to at least challenge themselves to try. I mean, you know, certainly I can imagine somebody who can't, maybe can never even get to a point of trying it. (laughs) You know, it's that hard to know for them. Yeah. But I would certainly invite them to try to challenge that stance a little bit. Is there any way I could get comfortable? What do I, what, what do I need to shift in my thinking or my understanding of how sex works? You know, just try to try to be flexible. What of the other partner who's actually craving this and feels like this is, I don't want to use the word priority, but this is actually important to him or her. Um, mm-hmm. What should that person be thinking? If uh, So let's use a husband and wife because this is a marriage um, podcast. So let's say the husband wants, should we just use maybe oral sex, right? And the wife is like, I'm against this. I I can never see myself like doing this. Should he, so you've actually addressed it from the, from the woman's or the, the wife's perspective, saying that mm-hmm. challenge that idea, try to see if it's something you can even do. But from the man's perspective, and this could be either way, I'm just using this scenario to kind of explain yeah. this. From the man's perspective, what should he be thinking if this is what he likes? And this is like a long-term marriage. He's like, so does that mean I would never get oral sex? How should he process this? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough thing, right? You have to, um, not just oral sex, but you sort of have to get clear on what are your, what are your non-negotiables? You know, what are your deal breakers? Is, is oral sex or any aspect of your own eroticism um, so important to you that you might lose a relationship over it? Mm. You know, and I think, I think sometimes that's valid. I mean, maybe let's take an easier one, right? Somebody okay. wants children. Yes. Somebody wants children and the other partner does not. And, you know, really, I'm sure I do not want to have kids. It's, it's possible the other person could decide, yes, I want children, but the relationship matters more, right? Like you have to make a choice. It's also possible they'd say, no, I want children enough that I'm going to have to leave this marriage. That's true. And go somewhere else, right? So it's, it's similar with sexuality. So you know, oral sex, is it so important to somebody and they just can't imagine their whole life without that? They they could, you know, theoretically leave a relationship over it. But, I, you know, I think you have to weigh what, <laughs> you can't get everything, right? So yeah. <laughs> What's, yeah. That's life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes. And it's like, maybe I have to live without this or I have to, um, it, gosh, I hate the idea of like once a year on my birthday, maybe I, <laughs> I can do it. Yeah. Because the other thing is, if, if your partner... If your partner's not enjoying giving it, it's probably not going to be very enjoyable receiving it either, right? So, yeah, uh, so it's kind of defeats it's, the it's whole. It's not problem. the kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's not the kind of thing you want to get. It's just a once a year, um, you know, pity thing because that's not very fun either. What they're really looking for is sort of an enthusiastic oral sex, right? Yeah, so, that's true. Hmm. Yeah. So following this conversation, right, yes, uh, from what I hear is like this, I never actually knew the topic of sex could be actually this broad. I never thought that both couple, both um, partners in a marriage could could come together and say they both want it five times a week or they don't even want it, maybe they want it once a month. So it's very interesting to like grasp that information. Oh, yeah. You mean in terms of how different people's sex lives are? Yes. Yeah, yeah. All over the place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so why why does sex in general, like the frequency of sex, why does it decrease over time in a marriage? Can you help us like buttress that point? Well, I mean, there's a lot. Address it, there's a lot at pl- yeah, there's a lot at play with that. So first thing is there's some science to show that our brain chemistry changes. So in the early part of a relationship, what you might call the infatuation stage or the honeymoon stage or whatever, the first, you know, roughly 18 months, when we think about our love, our whole brain lights up. Yes. Right? There's activity all over the place. All these neurotransmitters going on. Well, after about 18 months, when you think about the person you love, 
the part of your brain that lights up is the same part of your brain where you keep your grocery list. Wow. I know. <laughs> it seems so discouraging, right? Yeah. So, but there really is there really is something to the hormonal and brain reaction that changes. So we don't have access to that same reward drive, or I don't even know how you'd put it, you know. Uh, so the brain chemistry is different. Then you add in um, you know, when you're just dating and you're seeing each other every once in a while or whatever, there's there's time set aside, there's priority for your relationship, there's all that newness versus when maybe you've moved in together or you're married, now you've got real life all the time, right? Yes. And we don't tend to set aside date time as much. It's all, it all blends together, right? We got to pay the bills, we got to clean the dishes, we got to, you know, get some sleep for work, all that kind of stuff. And then you add in things like aging, Right. And changes that we, you know, having children. I mean, all this, <laughs> all these things that happen <laughs> with life that get in the way of having time and energy for each other. Hmm. So if I hear you correctly, does this mean that um, you can. So essentially all the all the hormones and the chemicals in the brain based on the based on life, life events, like things can actually change, which I agree with. Uh, but the question I'm asking is, is this going to be different with another person? So because I guess because with this person, you've been with this person, say, for 10 years. If you mm -hmm. met someone new, despite the fact that you're aging, is this going to be different or is it just going to be the same? Well, no, it would be different because you're back to the very beginning of a relationship with somebody new. You've got all that new relationship energy, your brain chemistry. I mean, you wouldn't go back to being 18 years old again, but there is an excitement that can come with a new person. But again, it's going to wear off after about 18 months. The same, cycle's <laughs> the same cycle will happen with another person. Now, it's not impossible that somebody's with the wrong partner. Okay. In their next relationship, you know, we get divorced and maybe the next person we marry, it works out. Um, we do a better job in our relationship. We pick better. That relationship is successful. It's not like you should never leave a relationship, but we're facing the same trends and patterns. We're still going to get older. We're still going to move past that 18 months period where our brain chemistry changes. We're going to still have challenges. So how do we overcome this as so so my listener is a married woman right so how will she overcome this challenge yeah what i suggest is um not so much scheduling sex as scheduling the opportunity for sex so something that i say to my clients you know in my therapy practice and i talk about this in my book is think about sex like you're going to the playground right? It's the outing that counts, not what you do once you get there. Nothing says you have to go down the slide, right? You could swing a little bit, you, you know, you see what you feel like once you're there, you stay as long as you want to stay. But if you get out and play with your partner, then that's a successful trip. So what I encourage people to do that, have, you know, are struggling at all with sex and with sexual desire is to schedule those trips to the playground, right? Set some so time aside where you can prioritize being together, where you can be physically intimate, you know, whether you're massaging or kissing or whatever it is, and then see what happens. Mm. So you, you don't want the pressure to show up and have to have sex, but you want to, you want to, you know, you want to create this thing where you could end up wanting to have sex once you got going. Yes, that makes a whole lot of sense. Because I've been thinking about this normally when people advise, oh, you should schedule it. And I'm like, that sounds so mechanical. That sounds so like it's, it removes the whole fun out of the whole equation. <laughs> well, not just the fun, but it, it also starts to put so much pressure on. Like I have to have sex tonight. Like how do I go from zero to 60? It's like this, you know, it, it starts to be something you have to live up, live up to. And I, what I hear from a lot of clients is they start to dread Tuesday night or whatever <laughs> it is, you know, because there's all this expectation instead of, wait, we're just going to the playground. We get to do what, whatever we want to do. And we stay, you know, we just, without the pressure and the expectation, you can actually get in the mood more easily. And then you might actually want to have sex. Which makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So let's, let's uh, touch on the topic of, um, 
sexless marriages. So what mm-hmm. is what what is considered as a sexless marriage? Like how often how when so basically when when do you know you're in a sexless marriage? What sh- what are the triggers? Well, I mean, when it's, it's generally described as having sex less than 10 times a year. So like if you're not even having sex once a month. Oh, okay. That's cons- that's that's sort of the definition of it. Now, again, if both people are happy having sex that frequently, there's not a problem. But the issue is, you know, the reason sexless marriage comes up is it often isn't that they're happy, <laughs> you know, yeah. at least one of them, if not both are actually unhappy with the lack of sexual intimacy in the relationship. And it starts to affect their emotional, you know, connection and their sense of, of being intimate at all. Interesting. I'm finding it hard to wrap my, wrap my head around this. Cause this is the first time I'm hearing this because normally you hear, Oh, a sexless marriage means there is trouble. Like there's fire in the mountain. Right. But you're saying, right. As long as both, both of them are happy everything is perfect in fact you're sailing to a good place so how do you know how do you know so for a woman in this situation right that she's fine she's probably in a sexist marriage she's happy everything is happy she feels like her husband is equally happy but how does she know for sure that he's happy and he's not just um being quiet about the whole situation i believe that you can that you know <laughs> whether your partner is actually happy or not. Um, there there are so many ways that we read each other and we pick up the mood and we you know, I, I I just think that even if somebody weren't talking about their unhappiness with their sex life, you would pick up that vibe. So, I I think generally people in a sexless marriage experience it like it's um, the elephant in the room. There is this pressure. There is a presence there. Just nobody's talking about it. So I don't really think they're oblivious to it. the situation. But it's also, yeah, but it's also possible if you're really in a marriage and you're not having sex and you are fine with that, you can always just ask your partner, you know, I realize we're not really having sex and and I'm, you know, you seem okay with it. Is that really (laughs) true? You know, are you more unhappy than I realize? (laughs) (laughs) Have a conversation. Check it out. But these conversations can be um, difficult to have sometimes. Like, you know, for some couples, things like money, um, maybe other relationships, like maybe in-laws, friends, like Mm -hmm. intimate topics. Like, how do you address such topics without and ensure you get a response without just having the other party shut off? Or shut down. Yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to I know it's a tough thing to talk about. It is it's one of the big ones that's hard to discuss. Um I recommend having the conversation based in positives rather than negatives. Right. So instead of blaming or accusing your partner, <laughs> you you basically say, Hey, I want our relationship to be as good as it can possibly be. Okay. And, and in that I'm wondering if our sex life is really as good as it can be. Either I'm, you know, not happy. I'm struggling with the fact that we're not having sex or what we're doing isn't really working for me. And I really want us to have this be as strong as the rest of our relationship. So that would be the first part is to, you know, don't be blaming and accusatory, but come at it from the, what you want, which is a very, very strong marriage. And then I recommend that you talk about your own role in the dynamic. You know, hold hold yourself accountable. I never initiate sex. I've let it fall to the, you know, the bottom of the list. I haven't been prioritizing it. I realize that when you sort of seem like you're interested, I pretend you don't, you know, that I don't even know what you mean. <laughs> Whatever it is that's going on, if you if you're talking about your own role, then the other person's less likely to feel defensive. So what about the couple that fight a lot? So I'm talking, so I'm trying to compare both right now. So there's a couple, uh, they tend to fight like every other day, raining insults, like they, they tend to fight like every other day, but they tend to have sex quite often. But then you have the other, the other couple. So that's couple A, you have couple B, right? They, they hardly fight. Mm-hmm. They're like cruising smoothly, 
but they hardly have sex as well. So I would say they probably have like a sexless marriage, mm. but they don't have like as much fights. Right. So is there a science behind that? Well, I wouldn't say it's quite so black and white because fighting, I mean, first I'd want to know how constructive are their fights? Like for if it's a couple that has a lot of disagreements and they're able to speak about it respectfully and get it resolved, they can hear each other, they respect each other, they come to some sort of mutual understanding or, you know, can agree to disagree. Yeah. That's a that's a really strong relationship. And it wouldn't surprise me if they're having sex a lot. Right. Mm. But if it's a couple that's fighting and they're nasty and name calling and it's contemptuous and, you know, then I would suspect that their sex reflects that. That even if they're having sex a lot, they might be, it's possible for sex to be kind of a hostile act. You know, it, it, pro- it probably has, it, ha- it probably has as much nastiness in it as the rest of their interactions. Yeah. Right. So it really matters how those fights are. Mm. Then we get the couple that you say is not fighting. Yes. Well, they may not be speaking fighting but maybe there's a lot of (laughs) contempt you know unspoken contempt and nastiness or avoidance or you know a lot of negativity it just isn't coming out with words right and so sure they may not be having sex versus a couple that's truly happy and nice to each other and get along and don't disagree very often you know and then isn't having sex right like there's so there's there's at least a quadrant here not a binary and probably more than that Mm. So do those emotions matter, like the emotions that lead to sex? So, for instance, the couple that is always fighting, of course, like, does does it matter what type of emotion happens? Or is it just if sex happens, it's quality sex? Oh, no, I think the emotion matters a lot, right? Because if they're, if, if they're using sex to be mean to each other, or to withhold if they're angry, you know, like all that kind of stuff comes out in sex. That doesn't seem like quality sex to me. Mm. You know, you, you have to think about what what is it you want to get out of sex. I personally, I believe that sex is really about pleasure and in connection with your partner. So if if sex isn't coming out of that, if it's coming out of punishment or disrespect or contempt or all the various negative things I can think of, yeah. right, that's not that's not sex I'd want to be having. Mm. So this 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 brings me to making love and having sex. I think that's what you're talking about. Is that it? Um. Also, no, should I ask? I, is there I a difference really. between making love and having yeah, sex? People have different ways of um, thinking about this stuff. I don't use that kind of language, though. Okay. I mean, I think some people, yes, this this is exactly what would resonate with them. But it's not like only sweet, gentle lovemaking is worth having. Sometimes, you know, fast and furious and picky. <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah, all kinds of flavors of sex can be great. It doesn't have to be um, making love. I, I guess to me that connotes sort of a slow, sweet, you know, maybe even sappy yeah. <laughs> encounter, which can be lovely, right? Those could be beautiful, but co- so can Fast and Furious. So it's really, I don't even know how to put this in words. It's not, it's not the style of sex okay. that makes the difference. I think it's, a, it's the pleasure and connection between the two people and the degree of respect and collaboration between them. Mm. So I was just going to ask you to paint me a picture of the, you know, a picture of a quality sex, but you just, you just kind of like summarize that now. Well, how do you know if the other party is on board with what you're doing? Do you have to ask every single time? So for a couple that just, um, that are just getting into the sexual activity, they've not really understood each other or even for, I mean, you have many married couples that are still figuring each other out. Right. So how do you know? Mm -hmm. I like it rough. And the other party, I don't know if she would like it rough or if he would like it rough. How do you experiment with that without um, without rocking the boat, if I may say so? Well, I mean, I think this does have to do with length of relationship. So when you're in a brand new relationship, you have a new partner. I think you want to err on the side of really explicit consent. Okay. Right. You want an enthusiastic yes, not just the absence of a no. You don't want to take silence, you know, 
as as a yes. Okay. So I think you do want to be more explicit and clear about what it is you like and is this okay with you, you know, and invite that um, communication. I also think it's really important. I think no is so important. And so each person has a job of speaking up if there's a problem, mm-hmm. right? Because that's how you, that's how you can trust. You, you can't really trust a yes unless you know that they can say no. Yes, that's that's true. That's so true. Now, once you've been together for a while, Mm -hmm. you kind of figure out um, the boundaries, you know, what it is you both really like, what's a sometimes thing, what needs checking in, what doesn't. I mean, you develop some knowledge and awareness of each other that you can act from, but you still have to keep in mind that any particular instance, maybe that's not okay. Maybe they don't want that this time. And that has to be all right. But th- but I think it takes the other person speaking up more about that. Like if we've done, I don't know, if we've had oral sex plenty in our past, but tonight I don't want to. Yeah. I need to say that. It wouldn't be really wrong of my partner to, to sort of proceed towards that because it's been part of our menu. But it needs to be okay if I say, hey, I'm just not into that tonight. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay. So... I did a poll at the library to get like possible mm-hmm. questions um, from moms in moms, especially married moms, just to understand, you know, what they wanted to solve in their life regarding sex. So I'm just going to be asking mm-hmm. you the questions um, one after the other, if that's okay with you. So sure. the first question is, how do you learn your body triggers so as to ensure that um, sex is mind blowing? I know, right? <laughs> well, mind blowing. Um, I don't. I don't encourage people to set themselves up with expectations like sex should be mind blowing because that puts a lot of pressure on you. But that being said, I think each person needs to learn their own body. Masturbation is really important. Understanding what you like, how you like to be touched you know, what you, what your anatomy is and how it responds so that you can demonstrate or communicate with your partner about exactly what it is you want, right? It's, I believe that each person is really responsible for their own pleasure. We enlist our partner, but it's our job Mm -hmm. to know what it is that arouses us, what it is that would bring us to an orgasm, you know, what it is we want to experience. You know, we need to be advocating for that. So we need to figure that out often through masturbation or alone, you know, so that then we have it to share with a partner. It's not impossible to explore that with our partner. We can do that too. Yeah. But to take ownership of your own pleasure and then, you know, advocate for that, make sure you're getting it. Mm. So I I feel like based on what you said, I can actually answer the next question. (laughs) So the next question says, um, handling a husband with a higher libido. How do I do? How do I deal with my husband's um, sexual desires? Um, it's it happens quite often, and I'm always left hanging. So I think what she's trying to say is he has a higher libido, which means they have sex often, but then she doesn't get sexual satisfaction. So what should she do? Uh, so I'm going to try to answer, even though I know you're the expert. Sure. <laughs> I'm going to try to answer based on um, what you've said. So essentially I would suggest that um, she figures out what's, she figures out her body, what um, gets her aroused. And then probably she, get herself up to speed so that when she gets to him, they can both like climax together. Is that, is that, is that a right thing from an expert perspective? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't say they necessarily need to need to climax together. Okay. I think that's, you know, some people can do that, but that also puts a lot of pressure on yeah. you. But I think she needs, I think she needs to be learning more about what it is she wants and advocating for that and speaking up and saying, Hey, this isn't really working for me to keep having sex just for you. You know, if 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 you want me engaged in sex, this has to work for me as well. And I need my desires and my libido have to be accommodated here. So I need it slower or I need more foreplay. I need more touch. Um, I don't want to have sex five times a week. <laughs> yeah, you know, we need we need to we need to work together more as a collaboration on this or my desire is going to go th- down the toilet. 
you know, like I can't show up as if it's my wifely duty or my obligation and feel good about the sex we're having. This, this is going to get bad over time if that's what's happening. Yeah. So the next question is actually similar. This seems to be a hot topic then, because the next question is similar to this. How can I get in the mood quickly when I'm tired and out of my mind? (laughs) Yeah. So again, why quickly? It's better to take whatever time it is that you need to understand what it is you need to shift gears, you know, leave the the kids or the chores or whatever, get all that out of your mind. What is it that you need to to sort of get aroused and get in the mood? And putting the pressure on yourself to be quick about it doesn't help. So go ahead and take your time, figure out what it is you need and take the time you need. So this will require a lot of conversation because so hard to be saying quickly means there's, there's some form of expectation. Yeah, exactly. And maybe her her partner has that expectation, like, hey, you got to be able to show up and eat <laughs> yeah. But it's like, no, that's, you know, to be able to say, hey, that's not how it works for me. I want, I want to really enjoy sex. And for that to happen, I need a longer runway <laughs> to get going. And I actually need more stimulation and I need this or I need that and, and to advocate for that. So I just, I would take another, another angle. What if she is... That's this person, this question. What if she is, um, let's see. What if she's, she's actually been saying no consistently and she's just asking this question because she wants to say, uh, well, it's an expectation. She wants to say yes and know how to do it quickly, but she probably wants to get it over and done with then. Um, so wait, you're, you're, you think, so I, so I guess the way you're reading this question is this is somebody that's been saying no to yes. Yes. So I think someone, so I'm just, I'm just assuming really, because that's the only question she gave me, but I'm just saying, I'm just assuming that what if she's actually been saying, um, no to sex and she feels some form of guilt and kind of wants to get Uh, up to speed. So it's not like, so she's putting the pressure on herself basically, even though she's been saying no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. I, people that struggle to feel desire, I mean, there's sort of two different ways to feel sexual desire from my perspective. So one of them is what I call proactive, Mm -hmm. which means you think about sex, you get spontaneously horny, maybe you fantasize, you you are interested in making sex happen. But lots of people have a more reactive sex drive. So they maybe don't get horny at all. They don't get aroused. They don't think about sex. They feel no desire or at least very little. Those people need an opportunity for their desire to arise. For those people, their desire comes after they're stimulated, right? We get going. We start. We go like go to the playground, right? We start to swing a little bit. We start to kiss and touch. We get massaged. Maybe it's even conversation. Something needs to happen that they can gradually get in the mood. Then they want sex. Mm. So for somebody like this, yeah. often they're saying no all the time because they don't feel in the mood right then they don't give themselves a chance Mm. to start and get in the mood. Right. So in, in your scenario here that what you're imagining about the question questioner is that it sounds to me like she would be struggling to feel desire. So she says no, as opposed to wait, let's say maybe let's start and get going and see what happens. Some of the time she may interest end up interested in sex. Sometimes not but it probably won't be quick. There's no reason to put this pressure on her herself to react quickly. Mm, okay. That's a, yeah, I like that. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a great answer. Wow. Um, this is a very insightful conversation. <laughs> so what about um, the next question is our sex life has dropped ever since having kids during pregnancy and now after childbirth, th- I'm just so overwhelmed and things are not the way they used to be. How can I get yeah. things back the way they used to be? Well, again, I never encourage people to think about getting back to some old time because we really can't go back. It's about what's possible from this point forward. So I think depending on how old the children are, I mean, first of all, children disrupt our lives dramatically, as wonderful (laughs) as they are. (laughs) It's a huge stressor. It's a huge time suck, you know, to have children. Like they take a lot of time and energy. Yes, of course. So (laughs) it's a matter of, again, right, right, of prioritizing what amount of time you can for just you and your partner. 
And when they're with young children or a lot of children, that's not going to be a lot of time. Hopefully it gets a little easier as they get older. Then you have to think there are changes in our body. There might've been some birth trauma. Mm. Uh, maybe things aren't working the same as they used to work, right? So it's about discovering what brings you pleasure now. And don't expect it to work just like it did before. Oh, wow. And I would encourage people to take the pressure off of having like penetrative sex, you know, penis and vagina sex, or that it needs to be any particular thing. What's it like to explore pleasure and connection with your partner, maybe in new ways, and gradually get back into it. I think people have so much of a pass-fail attitude, like there's, (laughs) this is sex and everything else isn't, (laughs) and that doesn't that doesn't set you up for success. So it's more, how do you start to be sexually intimate and pursue pleasure together and give yourselves a freedom for that to look different than it used to look? I always knew about the whole postpartum body changing after, after you have kids, your body changes, but I never knew it this way. Like, <laughs> this is, I never knew it this way. Like your body can actually change in terms of sex. I thought it was still going to be like, the you know the regular way it has always been but you know having time or something like that but not the actual intercourse not the actual organ actually well, change not the actual organ yeah, changing I mean, well it depends i mean not everybody experiences that but if you've had tearing in birth you know um certain things can make things work differently right? Or you might have pain that you didn't have before. Or when you, if you're breastfeeding, breastfeeding affects your hormone levels, right? And you can be drier there, you know, things can be different. And this is the kind of stuff that happens throughout our lives because illnesses can make our bodies change too, or aging makes our body change. So it's just one more place where our sexual functioning might change. That's so true. So if that's the case, rather than beat your head against the wall, it's like, well, adapt to the changes. Figure out what's pleasurable and how you can share that with a partner. That's, 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 that's so good. (laughs) So the next question is, how do you keep the bedroom spiced up when the husband is away or on a long distance marriage due to career circumstances? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's tricky. It's hard to do that even when they're there. (laughs) Um, and actually, maybe it's hard. Maybe it's easier when they're away. Really? How? Because you're not sharing the day. Well, I mean, in some ways, because you're not sharing the daily life stuff. Uh. But I guess this is this is a struggle in any marriage, long distance or not. But I, I think the answers are similar. You have to prioritize it. You have to figure out time and energy to put towards each other in that way. And then, you know, you've heard of phone sex. Yeah, I was just going to say text sexting. Yeah, you're set. Right. So you can send sexy texts or pictures. You can do video conferencing where you're, you know, telling each other sexy stories and masturbating. Um, You write each other erotic stories, you know, whatever it is that you can invest some energy in your sexual connection. And then hopefully, you know, you're building up an awful lot of anticipation for when you see each other. Yeah. I hope the roofs don't go on fire when you see each other. Right. So the next question is, whose responsibility is it to initiate sex? I'm tired of my husband waiting for me all the time. He doesn't refuse me when I do, but he never initiates. Am I not woman enough? What should I do? Mm. Well, um, should I? It's, that's a long, I should I go over I it again? Or no? Okay. No, no, no. I got it. Um, I don't think it's ideal if one person does all the initiating. I do believe that the person with more desire for sex probably initiates more, right? They're the one that should be, you know, they've got more desire, so they're going to bring it up or they should advocate for what it is they want. But the person with less desire should still step up and initiate sometimes. So it's not like I think it should be 50-50, but in this case, her husband um, I'm, I'm imagining that this is somebody, his, her husband has less desire for sex than she does and maybe has reactive desire, doesn't feel spontaneous desire. Which is what you explained So for earlier, people right? like that, right, right. So for people like that, they're not going to initiate sex because they're horny or because they're feeling aroused. They would initiate sex on purpose, intentionally trying to create an opportunity to get aroused. 
right? Mm-hmm. So instead of waiting for, oh, I'm waiting for everything to line up and for me to want it. It's like, no, you can't wait. For <laughs> you should just sort of say, okay, let's, I'm starting at zero, but let's just start kissing or let's start massaging or something. You know, he could do that too. He, d- he doesn't have to feel aroused to do that. So the, the lower desire partner, the person that has reactive desire should still initiate sometimes, but from like a different place. You know what I mean? Like from an intentional, thoughtful place. But I'm, I'm surprised that she says her husband, because normally it's usually the other way around. The woman, um, on average though, like in general, it's usually the woman say, you know, the man being the one to initiate most of the time. So to hear a woman say this, this is... Yeah, it's not that uncommon in my Practice. in oh. my view. Yeah, I see that a lot where the woman is the one that wants more sex or the woman's the one initiating it or the the man is the one struggling in some way. You know, remember, he also may maybe he's having some sense of pressure or sense of failure. Maybe he's having erectile dysfunction or he's feeling bad about his lack of libido when when sex starts to feel disappointing or like we're inadequate, like people start to avoid it, right? So maybe there's some stuff going on for him that he's not uh, initiating. Interesting. So, um, the next question is, I have never experienced orgasm. Am I weird or is it a myth? If it is possible, how can I get there myself? Well, no, I mean, orgasm certainly is not a myth, right? Plenty of people have orgasm, but people experience it differently. You know, so sometimes I think people maybe have a physiological experience of orgasm, but it's just not that big a deal. It's like, what's all the fuss about? <laughs> you know, it, it it doesn't always look like in the movies or something where somebody's screaming and thrashing and having this you know, huge experience. Yeah. So you know, sometimes I think people may be having orgasm and it just isn't, it's like underwhelming so that they don't even understand that's what's happening. Um but for somebody that hasn't or feels like their sexual pleasure is unexplored, yeah. the way to proceed is to masturbate, mm. to take your time, don't have pressure on yourself, expo- you know, maybe use running water or any, any number of ways that you might play around with various kinds of stimulation on various parts of your body. And remember that for many women, at least, the clitoris is the part of the body that's got most uh, responsiveness. So don't be thinking about internal stimulation as much as external, but to take your time, get to know your anatomy, your genitals, you know, experiment with a lot of different kinds of touch and stimulation and and follow the bliss, follow the things that feel good and see what you learn about your own sexual pleasure. Okay. Um, So the next question, the next question is, I usually have soreness in my vagina after sex, especially urinating after sex. What does this mean? Oh, well, for, I mean, my first comment would be to see a doctor and make sure. I mean, I'm not a medical professional, yeah. right? Um, pain urinating can often be a uh, urinary tract infection, which can happen after sex if bacteria have been sort of... Um, uh, pushed up into the urethra, I guess is basically what can happen. Um, if the pain is inside the vagina, you know, you'd want to make sure the tissues are okay and that there's been enough lubrication. I mean, there's so many different reasons people can have pain. Uh, it's really worth seeing, you know, and maybe a number of different medical professionals to figure out exactly what's going on. Okay. Okay. So um, if you're listening, you need to see a medical doctor. Yeah. Yeah. If you're having pain that you you should definitely rule out all the medical medical causes of that. Okay. Awesome. And the last question is, how do you keep the sex life after your husband cheated on you and asked for forgiveness? I love him, but having sex with him after the fact is hard. How do I turn the clock around? Oh boy. that That's probably too big a question to get into, but, um, you can't, again, you can't put the clock back. You can never put the, you know, worms back in the can or whatever the <laughs> phrase is there. Um, there is so much to looking at infidelity and why it happened. And, you know, is a person really remorseful? Because it's one thing to say you're sorry. It's another to really hold yourself accountable for what you did. Um, some people after an affair have more sex uh, and some have way less. And it's all normal. It's it's quite a healing 
you know, road that you have to go on to repair a relationship after, uh, you know, a breach of trust like that. Mm. So that that's that's a nice um, way to wrap up this episode, and that's a perfect answer. Um, so, what if the listeners want to follow up with you, especially with some questions that they feel like, oh, they want more answers to? Um, is there how can they reach out to you? Can you provide maybe um, your website links, your social media, or if there's a particular way, do you receive emails, or how can they reach out to you? <laughs> Well, I mean, my website is jessazimmerman.com. And from there, they could get on my mailing list, which might be a nice thing to do. They can certainly link to my podcast website. And that's just bettersexpodcast.com. And there on my podcast website, there is a place where you can record a question to me. And then, you know, anonymously, I can sometimes I answer those on my podcast. So that's that might be the best way to try to get an answer. Cause it's not like I can give advice just over the internet. To yeah. <laughs> right. That people that aren't in my therapy practice, but you could submit a question either through my website or through that podcast recording um, that then I could maybe answer on an episode. Okay. What about, what about people that want to um, enroll in your therapy um, session? Is there, is there a process to that? Yeah, there is again on my website, jessazimmerman.com, but I can only work with people that live in Washington state. Okay. That's where I'm licensed as a therapist. Okay. So it's a limited segment of your audience. Okay. So if that. you're listening and you live in Washington um, state, feel free to send an email and follow up if you want to continue this journey with Jessa Zimmerman. And that ends the episode for today. Thank you so much for all the insightful information. This conversation has been so powerful. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Did you like this episode? If you did, I would love you to do just two things. One, share it with a friend, another mom who you think will benefit from this episode. There's love in sharing. And two, I would love to get to know you better. Let's chat. Book a free call at dreampermit.com slash chat. Or you can send an email to emma at dreampermit.com. That is E-M-M-A at dreampermit.com. I'll be waiting for your calls and emails. And until next time, stay fabulously gorgeous. And remember, motherhood is not a hindrance. It's an advantage.